First Ignite, artificial intelligence software built for the modern tech transfer office. The First Ignite AI platform helps streamline tech transfer activities, including disclosures, non-confidential summaries, and identifying licensing partners while providing the professional contact information of over 180 million professionals, turbocharging your office's marketing activities. Get started for free at firstignite.com. You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to the third episode of our AI and Tech Transfer Office series. Two weeks ago, we welcomed Mark Saddam, Vice President of Technology Opportunities and Ventures at NYU, who discussed how AI and machine learning can be a transformative tool for tech transfer offices. Today, we welcome John Kerry, Compliance Manager at NYU, to talk more in depth about how your office can use AI to create agreement summaries, comparisons, and breach slash termination letters, as well as much more. John is a dynamic legal professional with a Juris Doctor from Seton Hall University School of Law. Graduating cum laude from Baruch College, he holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with a minor in Philosophy. Currently, as a Contracts Compliance Manager at NYU, he integrates AI into workflows, conducts training on AI usage, and ensures agreement compliance. Prior to joining NYU, John worked in civil litigation, adding to his diverse skill set. Welcome, John. It's really great to have you here on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. I'm, I'm really excited to actually have this conversation today. Yeah, and it's a very timely conversation as well, because we had your boss, Mark Saddam, on the podcast two weeks ago. And he told the story about how after you were hired at NYU a couple months ago, one of the first projects he gave you was to do an internal audit of NYU's licensing agreements. And he told us at that time that he anticipated, given the volume of license agreements, it was probably going to take you like one fiscal year to review about three years worth of licensing agreements. And then he thought about three years to get through like 10 years worth of licensing agreements. And then he figured that was probably going to be the extent of what you were going to be able to do. And he said, you went off and you started to work on the project and you came back to him about uh, six weeks later asking whether you could use GPT to do the review. And Mark said, sure, go play, figure it out and come back if you find something interesting. And Mark said that in about five weeks, that something interesting that you came back with was that you had completed a review of about one year's worth of licensing agreements. And then you came back 60 days later after that and said you had completed a review of three years worth of licensing agreements. So that was absolutely amazing. So I'm curious, after hearing Mark's story, what made you decide to use GPT for this review? Had you used it for other projects like this previously? Yeah, so honestly, all credit to Mark and MCIT at NYU for allowing myself and the rest of my team to actually gain access to GPT and then try to figure out what we can do with it as a whole. So 
before I came to NYU, I had limited knowledge and access with GPT. I had used it previously um, while I was at one of the law firms I worked at, but it wasn't to really any great extent or detriment at that time, right? It was just to get the basics and see what could be capable with AI and is there something we could use maybe at the firm to kind of expedite processes. But everybody was and is still so scared to use AI for the practice of law that we kind of shied away from it right right away. And I think the ABA even says, you know, you can't use it for the practice of law currently. I think those are the actual words, right? Yep. So everybody's trying to figure out the gray area. What can we use it for? What can't we use it for? Uh, coming to NYU was actually a much easier transition into using AI for a couple of reasons. So the first probably two weeks at NYU, I, I worked at NYU, we didn't have access to GPT, right? That wasn't on the horizon, according to me, at least, or according to my team. It kind of all happened very suddenly, where Mark sent out this email, just like, hey, we're going to have a meeting with IT next week. Everybody bring your laptops, basically. <laughs> wow. We all, yeah, and I was like, all right, uh, interesting, but let's see what happens. So I asked him a little bit. I was like, hey, you know, what? what is this about? I'm new. I'm just, is there anything I should prepare? He was like, it's going to be about using GPT for maybe some of the work processes. And right away, I was excited because I thought, all right, I have this project. It's to audit agreements. It's pretty standardized. Maybe there's something I'll be able to find or figure out that, you know, I can move this project along. And instead of taking two years, I can do it in a year and a half, something along those lines. So we all kind of showed up at this IT meeting and it was just basically uh, Dr. Yin, he's the director at, of MCIT. He gave everybody access for 30 days. He said, here's uh, ChatGPT, here's what it does, go play. Go see what you can do. Mark okayed it for specific positions and we kind of went back. And at that point, what I did was I took the license agreements we had and I just ran them through GPT to see what a summary would look like according to GPT. And it was a phenomenal summary, but it had nothing to do with our database or the way we actually track our information at that time. So what I started to do was kind of play around with the wording of what I asked GPT to do, to do with the agreements. And that's when I actually started getting outputs that I found to be you know, actually usable for the position I was currently in. Wow, that's a great story. And, you know, a few other things that Mark mentioned repeatedly during his podcast, you know, he talked a lot about prompts, you know, creating prompts, editing prompts, quality control when it comes to prompts. And that leads me to want to ask you about prompt engineering, because it's so important. Let's start off with the basics. Tell us what it is and what's its role in tech transfer offices. So prompt engineering is actually designing these plain language, for the most part, prompts, right, which are just a set of inputs or queries that you're looking to get a specific output for. So if you ever go into GPT and you just use the public version, for example, right, the open AI version, and you have a query, that's mostly what a prompt is, right? It could be a couple words, or in some instances, like what we have now, it could be you know, 350 words of very specific you know, meanings, commas, additions, things like that. But it's essentially the creation of these at times, large plain language paragraphs that instruct GPT on what you want to actually occur when you throw an input back into the chatbot. Now, walk me through crafting these prompts. You know, you craft it, then you've got to evaluate it, then there's quality control, and then I'm sure there's some adjusting involved. 
talk to me how you go through that process and how do all those different pieces fit together in practice? Yeah, so what I first did, and everybody, it's kind of like an art. So everybody's going to have a little bit of a different take on exactly what works best for them. But what's worked best for me, and I think what's worked pretty well for some of my team members at this point is kind of reverse engineering of the prompt. So specifically what I did was I took a license agreement and I manually audited it, right? I would go through the whole agreement. I would actually summarize it. I would pull all the points I wanted out of it. I'd have a very neat list at the end. And that was going to be the data that I was actually going to upload into our database to go ahead and track everything in this agreement that needs to be tracked, right? For a tech transfer office to track things, it's usually like, royalties that we receive, license fees, patent expenses, you know, all of the things that make sure that we get paid and that we get our reports or that we're sending reports. So I would take a full license agreement, 25, 35, however many pages, read the whole thing, read my summary, and then I would look at that summary and say, okay, for every license agreement, these are going to be the basic components I need to make sure that we're tracking everything correctly. So from there, I would start to look at it and I would type in the prompt box, right? I'd be like, for the following agreement, please provide the financial terms, please provide the milestones, please provide the royalties, and it would kind of build from that, right? And so you would run it. At that point, you would run whatever prompt you built through a license agreement and see what comes out. And most likely the first four, five, six, maybe a hundred times, you're not going to get exactly what you're looking for and you're going to have to make certain tweaks. You're going to have to go back and reword it. But eventually what you should be able to get is a great output that mimics your original work so that now you can go back in and you could throw in, you know, 15 license agreements and get the same exact output in the same order over and over again. And I think for tech transfer offices and honestly just offices in general, what you want is something that you can repeat, right, on a large scale. So if you're going to put all the time into prompt engineering, because it, it takes a while to actually develop these plain language prompts, but if you're going to put the time in, you want something that will produce an output and you can use it, you know, six, 7,000 times perhaps, or you can use it for years. And that's what we've been focusing on, these large prompts that we know we can always use, right? So it's writing a license. We're always going to need to write a license. It's summarizing agreements. We're always going to need to do that. It's financial details, things like that. So just to give us an example, how long would you say it took you to create, you know, one of these prompts for these license agreements? Sure. So my first license agreement prompt, which is for the summary, uh, you know, they're still fluid. They still are constantly in work. But I would say it took me probably 10 hours to get a solid understanding of what I'm going to need. And then another three, four hours of actually refining that prompt down to a usable um paragraph i would call it at that point right and that's what it was it was mostly just a paragraph of my like free form ideas on what i needed and at this point i would say i had a total of maybe 20 hours into that master prompt but i've used it to save thousands of hours legitimately at this point yeah how many license agreements have you gotten through i you you got through three years worth of license agreements how many rough estimate would you say that is i've actually made it through about eight years. You've made it through eight and you've only been there since May. Yeah, I've been here since May. And I would also say that uh, it probably was about three months of work total to go through all the license agreements. And that's incredible. Thank you. But it's when you have statistics like that, people will start to listen, especially like corporate environments, uh, because, you know, as Mark mentioned, 
it was supposed to be like a two-year project to go through about six years of agreements. And I have benchmarks just for myself and for my team and for, you know, when we go ahead and look at how valuable ChatGPT is. And before ChatGPT, I was doing like maybe three to five agreement reviews a day, making sure this database was updated, sending out emails, et cetera, right? But that was my benchmark, really, three to five agreements. And now uh, when I put my head down, I got through, I think the max number I hit in one day was 49 agreements reviewed and database updated. So that's the type of scale we were able to see. So I can get through a year of license agreements if I really had to now in probably three days. Yeah, it's incredible. And as you've seen, since you've only been at NYU since May, you know, tech transfer is obviously very complex. You know, we're just touching on one aspect of the tech transfer process, which is license agreements. Talk to us a little bit about how prompt engineering can enhance the accuracy and efficiency of a lot of the different processes that take place within tech transfer offices. Yeah, it it definitely goes beyond just what you do in terms of licenses, right? Um, It's For my example, for actually reviewing licenses, there are times where you're going through, and you know this, a 40-page agreement, and eventually the lines start to blur, and you you might not pick up on a small detail, for example, right? Like maybe there's a third milestone where at raising a million dollars in capital, NYU should receive $100,000, something along those lines. It's buried in tons of legalese and just in the middle of the agreement, and you might you know, skim over it, and when you're creating your own summary, you might not hit it. What ChatGPT does, though, is it's something that never gets tired. It never exhausts itself. So it's always able to find those small nuances, right? And when I'm doing quality control, so I'm using my documents, the ones I've hand-created, the summaries I've hand-done and drawn versus GPT. GPT pretty much always beats me at this point, right? It's always going to pick up on everything I picked up on, plus a couple additional details. And I don't feel bad about that. I know that I'm going up against a fine-tuned machine for the most part that's kind of designed to do this type of work. Do I think that it's going to take my job? Do I think it's going to replace people? Absolutely not, because there's still so many human elements you need to every input, right? Like uh, Quality control gets mentioned all the time. Who's going to do the quality control? Like it always is going to have to fall back on someone to go through these documents and review it, right? But it it goes beyond that. It goes into what our business developers can do, right? When they prep for meetings now with potential inventors, they might not be, you know, experts on every different type of invention or um, innovation that they see come across their desk. But now with GPT in 25 minutes, they can have a pretty good understanding of it. And one of our favorite things to do is take a very complex innovation and tell GPT, hey, you've done this down to a 10th grade reading level for me. It's one of my favorite things to do, right? Because I don't have a scientific background by any means. So when something insane comes across, I'm like, look, GPT, I don't really understand what's going on here. Please bring it down to a 10th grade reading level. And it will produce me a phenomenal summary. Right on what exactly is being said by this tremendous innovator. And I'll be able to read it, understand it, and digest it, and then have a conversation. But you can even go beyond that. Once you have your 10th grade summary, you can now have a conversation with GPT about questions you have. So if something's not making sense, I'll just ask it, hey, what did you mean by this? And we'll have a full conversation, GPT and I. And by the end of it, I have a pretty decent understanding, at least enough to go forward and meet with the, with the inventor. 
John, you know, another really important aspect about tech transfer offices has to do with collaboration. As you know, tech transfer offices are highly collaborative offices, and we all know that collaboration often brings about the best results. So talk to us a little bit about how prompt engineering fosters collaboration within tech transfer offices. Yeah, so just in my team alone, right, there's collaboration amongst us and there's collaboration into other actual components and departments of the hospital, for example, right? So I, you know, I work closely with contract managers, but I don't necessarily work that closely with the BDs, the business developers, or you know, the, the finance team necessarily. But what's happened now is when I'm creating one of these massive language prompts, right? I might need input from the BDs. I might need to know exactly what they think about a prompt or an output. Because if I'm creating a prompt, for maybe for maybe for an invention disclosure, for example, right? If I want a prop that's all about you know trying to reduce the time it takes for an innovator to get through an invention disclosure, I'm not going to be the expert at that. I might be you know the the quote unquote expert for prompt engineering amongst my team, but to actually move forward and figure out what's best for for the innovation. I'm going to need to talk to BDs. I'm going to need to talk to maybe you know the finance team and see what they think about everything. So you're kind of forced to go around and get as much input as you can when you're creating these massive language prompts. And even you know it goes beyond that. So, for example, um, I, I've worked now since since I've kind of done the prompt engineering. I've worked with people in patient care who are trying to create you know bots for patient care and patient intake processes, things like that. And that's something that I would have never been able to kind of cross into. That's a there's a barrier there at the hospital, and I'm in tech transfer, they're in patient care, and it would never make sense for us to meet. But now with everything that's happening, there's tons of opportunity for me to go out and expand my you know my horizons and see who else is out there, who else can use AI, and what other prompts we can actually start to engineer for either my team and get advice from other teams, or for other teams that they can have advice from my team potentially. So, John, we've mentioned quality control, but now I want to really dig in and talk about it in detail. Can you tell us the kinds of checks and balances NYU has put in place to maintain the quality of the work AI is used to create? So I know Mark actually talked about this a little bit on the podcast two weeks ago. There's a few things that can happen when you're actually using these prompts and we're using the same prompts all the time, right? Uh, for example, we had an update get pushed through in August, I believe, and it was an update for GPT. It had nothing to do with the way GPT is meant to process like contracts, but I believe the update was to make it more socially aware. And for some reason, the decision tree that GPT goes through when it's picking the next best word, which is what it always is doing, uh, was thrown off a little bit, was skewed by that update. So when I would put in one of it was it was shocking to us, right? Because when we use the same prompt that we've always been using, none of the outputs looked the same, right? We were getting, you know, a lack of information. We were getting totally different information. It might have not had anything to do with the actual agreement at the time. It started to kind of hallucinate to an extent. And we were like, oh, my God, what happened to our prompts? And so I... I messaged the head of MCIT and I just asked him, I was like, hey, did anything happen recently to GPT? And he was like, an update went through. It's like, oh, it skewed all my prompts. So we had to go back and actually look at the prompts that we had built and retweak them and re-engineer them a bit to get them back to the outputs that we originally had. So 
we have a couple of control um, systems in place at this point for when these types of updates come through and when these changes can happen. And basically what it is is a, a list of documents that we have with outputs, right? So I might have 10 agreements with 10 outputs, and these outputs are going to be perfect for the agreements associated with them, and they all come from the same prompt, right? So if I run one of those agreements through GPT with the prompt, it should produce the output pretty much more or less that we have saved already. If it doesn't, we know something's wrong and we know we have to go back and start to check our other prompts, right? So it's not like, oh, just this one prompt is off. Let's fix it and move on. Now we have to go through our library of prompts and make sure that we, you know, check everything, make sure everything's getting produced correctly, make sure everything looks right. And then we'll go and add new agreements and make sure that, you know, it's not just the old agreements, it's new agreements and we have everything we need in place again to kind of continue with the projects that we have in place that are built around these prompts. Yeah, it's fascinating. A lot like a scientific experiment where you need to have your controls and you need to calibrate like in diagnostics where you need to calibrate a machine or something before you use it. So that's that's really been interesting. And I wanted to ask you next, John, about um, evaluating the effectiveness of prompt engineering in creating these critical documents. How does the feedback loop help to improve performance? Yeah, so when when you're looking at effectiveness, it's it's an interesting concept because we weren't sure originally what would qualify as effective, right? We, we knew that we knew that we wanted certain things to happen and we knew we wanted work to be more accurate and, you know, faster, but we didn't know what would be effective. We didn't know how much time in equal time out. And at this point, we kind of have a pretty decent understanding of GPT as a whole and kind of generative AI so that we know when we see a use case, Right. We're like, oh, this is something that actually if we put the time into. We're going to get a return on it. So it's it's things like that. You know, you have to do every day. It's a mundane task. It might take 35 minutes a day, five days a week. But we know we can probably shrink that down to four minutes a day. Right. And maybe twice a week. So it's things like that that are going to actually be able to you're going to be able to recognize them and focus on them. It's those types of use cases. So in terms of. Um, you know, actually effectiveness and prompt engineering, I would say that you have to look at the type of use case you're, you're trying to identify and make sure it's something that you can, again, repeat, and it can be done maybe on a scale. Those are kind of the qualifications we're looking at now. And it's it can be something small. I'm not saying it doesn't have to be, right? Because a small task might take five minutes of prompt engineering to figure out, and now you have a quasi-automated solution to, uh, you know, an irritating task that you have to do every day. We've talked a lot about quality control, and now I want to turn to what you specialize in, John, which is compliance, which is absolutely crucial in this field. Talk to us about how you're able to ensure that the work being produced using AI adheres to regulations and standards. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Privacy is always a very large concern for people, right? That's that's kind of the one people hit on for the most part. And if you go to OpenAI, that's an open instance, and the model can be trained on the information you put into it, right? That's one of the agreements you make when you use their website. Obviously, if we're using patient data or proprietary invention data, we don't want a model to be able to be trained on what we're feeding it. So we actually use the Microsoft instance at NYU 
because of the compliance components, right? So the Microsoft instance we know is HIPAA compliant. We know that it's not going to be trained on anything we put into it. We know when we clear our chat logs, they're gone. There's no way to recall those. And that's what we're actually trying to really create everything else around is this model of privacy. So it, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same kind of question we get when inventors will ask us if we use AI and how we use it, right? Because there's, you know, a little bit of buzz around the tech transfer offices using AI now for a bunch of different processes. So they're always concerned, you know, are you going to put my invention into AI? We are. We are going to put into AI for one use or another, right? And I know Mark mentioned last time that he envisions the entire tech transfer office mostly being supplemented, individuals being supplemented by AI. And they are. They're all going to use it as an assistant bot, and those inventions are going to go in. So to ensure privacy and ensure quality, we tell them, look, you know, the highest privacy standards are HIPAA privacy components. And if we're confident enough where we can put patient information into the system, we're sure that, you know, the inventions that we put in and all the other questions we ask, they're not going anywhere. You don't have to worry about, you know, seeing it in six months on somebody else's radar and being like, oh my God, is this because it got put into some type of open you know, platform? It's not, we're making sure of that, right? And then there's other components to the compliance, obviously. We mentioned a little bit before, you know, the ABA, right? The, the American Bar Association and what, what they're concerned about right now. And so, you know, obviously we want our general counsel to use AI to try to assist them in any ways they can but we're sure that we can't use it, obviously, for the practice of law. So we're not creating anything, you know, we're in-house, obviously, so we're not doing too much briefing. We're not, you know, looking for citations. We're not blue booking. But, you know, at the same time, we want to make sure that we're using AI as efficiently and as effectively as possible, but that won't be for the practice of law, things like that. So we try to stay up on AI governance and policies as much as possible. That would have made law school so much easier if we had GPT at the time and oh could have God. run our legal writing assignments through first, you know, just do citation checking instead of that stupid blue book. Or, or for the bar, if you could have used it to just study for the bar. Exactly. Been, uh, yeah. Everything would have been so different. It would have been really different. But so I wanted to ask you in terms of technology, are there any specific tools or software solutions that tech transfer professionals can leverage to streamline the everyday processes? Yeah, so I'm I'm only going to speak on our instances of AI right now because I don't want to give away, you know, any false information or speak on something that I'm just not sure of. But I'm I'm sure if they use generative AI, right? And maybe that's Microsoft's version, maybe it's OpenAI's enterprise version that's out now, they absolutely will be able to take many of the processes and expedite them or streamline them to an extent, right? And even that, right, like we're seeing more and more of these types of processes being able to be streamlined or expedited because of what's coming out all the time for generative AI, right? So if you look at OpenAI, they just did their dev day a few weeks ago and they announced GPTs, right? Some people call them GPTSs, but basically what they are, and I'm not sure if Mark actually talked about this, they are chatbots that you are able to create now in plain language that will be able to assist you with tasks. So I've been working on chatbots for you know a slew of different tasks. And basically what these will be is just assistance for individuals or individual tasks. And it takes out the prompt engineering component to an extent. 
So if I create a chatbot for my team, they don't have to worry about going in and creating a new prompt or uploading a prompt. They just can interact with the bot and maybe drop full documents in. And the bot will know exactly what to do. They won't have to go in and add any more, you know, any additional instructions. And they'll be able to get their task completed in a couple of minutes instead of, you know, the laborsome process of going back and forth with documents or waiting for me to respond to an email or maybe one of the directors to respond to an email. Everything is pre-trained and pre-loaded so that they can go ahead, complete the task in isolation for the most part, and move on to the next component. And I think, I really do think the chatbot is going to, again, transform the conversation around AI and how everybody actually implements it into their daily workflows. Yeah, Mark did mention that, and he referred to it as everyone in the office getting their own executive assistant. So, you know, he he was saying that's a bonus. Everyone would be able to have their chat box, which would help them with those rote tasks that, you know, that, that have to get done, but nobody likes doing. No, and I imagine like an office action chatbot, right, where you can you can have an entire conversation with a chatbot who only specializes in potential office actions, right? So maybe before you go and send something out to you know, the USPTO, you run it through the chatbot and it tries to identify every single potential issue that could come up and it plays at devil's advocate for you, right? So it, it sends you like, here's the example office action that we could see being prepared by the USPTO. So now before you file and before you have to spend the time of going through that office action, making corrections, going back to the inventor, whatever it might be, right? You can actually go ahead, try to make those corrections in the first instance, and then go and send a final work product down, something you might be a little bit more confident in at that point. So John, I wanted to ask you, looking ahead, what recommendations can you offer to tech transfer professionals in terms of adapting and optimizing prompt engineering for the evolving landscape of tech transfer offices, as well as the broader tech transfer ecosystem? Yeah, it wouldn't even be necessarily about prompt engineering. I would say the best place or the, the best uh, advice I can offer right now is just trying to get into the field of AI in some aspect. Make sure that you guys are, you know, getting some type of license that you can be confident in. Go ahead and start using generative AI. And once you do that, once you kind of open those doors where your teams are able to actually access AI and you're able to go through, you know, a day's work with generative AI, that's when everybody will start to see the actual changes they can make in what they do and and start to reduce those timeframes and really shrink down on what it will be that will you know generate the most amount of time saved. So I you know I don't want to just advocate for NYU, but I really do think they did a phenomenal job with their approach to this. And their approach on the whole was here's 30 days of GPT use. Everybody can have it. Don't come back to us. Do whatever you want with it. And then we'll talk again at the end of the month and see what people have come up with. Because now there's no pressure, right? You don't, you're not looking to get, oh my God, I have to get four use cases out. Most people came back to the table with no, no use cases, but they had a little bit more understanding of what AI is now. So when the people with use cases came back and they said, look, this is what we're looking to do, everybody at least understood 
what they were trying to accomplish. Everybody understood how they got there. Everybody understood the process of you know putting a prompt in, running it, and seeing an output. And that matters a lot. So I would say the first thing everybody should try to do is actually get one of these licenses, either through Microsoft or OpenAI or whoever it is you guys choose. Obviously, I always say keep compliance in mind. So if you're a hospital, you have to worry about HIPAA compliance. If you're not dealing with PHI, you know, you're not on as tight of a leash as you are with patient health information, but you still have to make sure you're doing everything correctly and that the data you want to be proprietary stays proprietary. So do some research first, but try to get involved. You know, get your team involved, let them see what they can do with it. And once somebody, right, if it's even if it's one person per team, once they come forward with a use case, it's going to start to kind of blow people's minds and they're going to be excited about it, right? That's something that we've seen over and over again. So Different teams will come to you know the tech transfer office now at NYU and say, can you come and talk to our team and just explain how this has impacted your work? So we're like, you know, of course we'll do that. So we'll go to the teams, we'll explain everything. I'll be like, look, and we've mentioned this a couple of times, this isn't going to take your job. It's going to take the worst part of your job and make it a lot easier. So imagine you can take four or five, six of the tasks you do each day, the ones that you might hate the most, maybe it's housekeeping, things like that, and you can just kind of get rid of them all you know, in, in a week and a half just by using this tool. That's when people start to perk up. That's when they'll start to ask questions. That's when they're kind of willing to make the transition and listen a little bit. Well, thank you so much, Sean. This has been an absolutely fascinating episode. Of course. No, I've had a great time, honestly. And it's the one thing I'll say is the more tech transfer offices that get involved with using this type of AI and using just AI in general, the better it will be for everybody across the board because we all want the same thing at the end of the day. We all want you know processes to be either eliminated or expedited, and we want to see how other offices are doing it. We can't come up with all of the ideas on our own, obviously, and the more ideas we see, the better our own processes will get. Really. The, the quicker we'll get through a day's work the more work we'll be able to bring in, the more inventions we'll get back out. So we, we want to always try to push other tech offices and as many you know individuals as we can into this space as well. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, John, for providing us with a comprehensive understanding of prompt engineering. I'm interested to see how this technology changes in the coming year and beyond and how TTOs will be able to continue to harness its power. To our listeners, Be sure to tune in next week for the last episode of our AI series. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. 
Membership is open for 2023. Join us 